All right, Remnant, how are we doing? Excellent, excellent. My name is Frank. I'm one of the pastors. I'm so glad you're here. Um, we, uh, we've been kind of in this series of revelation where we've been looking at what God wants to reveal to us, those of us who are followers and those who've not yet chosen to follow or maybe have stiff-armed God. He, he still has the same revelation for us. He, he, he wants us to know what's going to happen in end times. He wants us to know how this all plays out. He wants us to have confidence looking towards the future. Um, and we're in the middle of the second and third chapter of Revelation. Um, and we're looking at these letters that Jesus resurrected Jesus in all of his glory. He turns to John and he says, I want you to write letters to the churches, seven churches. And we've learned so far that, that John was the pastor of Ephesus, the, the first church that he mentioned, and likely helped plant these other seven churches. Last week we looked at the church at Ephesus, um, and we learned that what Jesus told him was, look, you're really, really good at uh, keeping the word. You're really good at identifying false teachers. You're really good at holding on to my truth. You are really, really good at it. But in the process, you have left or abandoned your first love. You've allowed yourself to drift from where you were once. And, and God told them, uh, he said, look, I want you to repent. I want you to turn around and go back to the things that you were supposed to do and that you used to do when you first fell in love with me. That's the church at Ephesus. Tonight, we're going to look at the other six letters. And remember that these letters are, are simply messages from God through Jesus as God to the pastor of the churches to just tell them what is. This is the section of Revelation where God talks about what was, what is, and what is to come. We're in the what is process. What that means is, is that often the pastor of a church is not aware of the spiritual condition of the church. In other words, Jesus had to write a letter to that pastor, to each of these seven pastors and say, look, here's what you're doing well, but here's what I have against you. And I think for almost all those pastors, that revelation was conviction and a surprise and a massive disappointment. So let's look at the second letter, Revelation 2.8. And to the angel of the church at Smyrna write... The words of the first and last who died and came to life. Obviously, this is from Jesus. Smyrna is today Izmir, Turkey. Second largest city in Turkey behind Istanbul. There are no ruins left of the church of Smyrna. Jesus tells them, and we talked about the pattern of these letters. There's usually a commendation. This is what you're doing well. Then there's a condemnation. This is what you're not doing well. Then there's an action to take and a reward that comes if you take that action. So he turns to this church in Smyrna and he says, I know your tribulation. I know your poverty. You're rich. And the slander of those who say they are Jews but are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Sometimes we just need to know that Jesus knows. There's so many times if we could just hear from God, I, I know. We'd be able to go through anything bulletproof if we just knew that he knew. He tells him, I know. I'm aware of what's happening to you. I see what's happening. It's not beyond my control. I'm allowing it. I know. 
I know your tribulation. I know what's been happening to you. I know that you've lost everything. That because of your faith in me, you've lost every material possession that you have. But I want you to know you're rich. And he's going to compare it to another church, the seventh church that we're going to look at tonight, where they think they're rich. And he says, you're poor. You're desolate. But to the church in Smyrna, he tells them, look, I know what you're going through. And I know you've lost everything. Can can I just tell you that you're spiritually rich? That's what Jesus thought of them. And if Jesus considers them rich, they're rich. Our examination of ourselves is far less important than God's examination of us. He says, I know the slander. I know what people are saying about you. I know the lies. They're coming from people who say they are Jews, but they're not. They are a synagogue of Satan. Jesus' words to these churches are piercing. This, This all starts back in Acts chapter 15. The Jews, let me just sort of digress a little bit. The Jews, when they first became uh, Christians in the Jewish church, started believing in Jesus. What happened was they thought they could stay in the synagogue. They're simply a group of Jewish people who believe that the Messiah was Jesus and that he came and died and resurrected. And they fully expected to remain Jewish. They expected to be welcome in the temple. After all, the temple had welcomed people who were very orthodox Jews, people who were just socially Jews, people who were just born into Judaism. So the early Christian church really thought, well, we just believe Jesus is the Messiah, so we'll just fit into Judaism and we'll just understand that. But in Acts chapter 15, many of the Jewish people, as they moved into Gentile areas, began to tell new believers in Christ, you need to be circumcised. You need to follow the law of Moses. You need to come to the temple. You need to worship the feasts. You need to do all the things that you need to do to be Jewish first. And then, and only then, can you be part of this new Christian sect. But in Acts chapter 15, the disciples got together. They heard from God. They listened to Paul. They listened to all other people. And they said, no. We're saved by faith, not by action. As Christ followers, we're saved because we believe in what Jesus did, not because we have to earn it through following the Mosaic law. That decision was just the beginning of the great divorce between the Jewish church and the Christian church. Jews had been very tolerable until that moment. What changed? What happened? Well, what happened was they decided that something was more important than the law of Moses. What they decided was is that our faith in Jesus is the most important and the most decisive decision that we make. Well, to Jewish people, wait a minute. The law came from God's lips to Moses to us. And it wasn't that the Jewish people thought, well, you know, it's okay because you're just not obeying the law. 
You see, that happened in the synagogue all the time. They were a lot like Christian churches. There are people who are very orthodox, doing exactly what God wants them to do, trying their very best. And then there are people who are there who maybe grew up in the church and are just attending, but they're more culturally Christian or culturally Jewish. And the synagogue welcomed all those people. Because even the people who were rejecting the law of Moses still acknowledged that the law of Moses was important and necessary and the standard. The new Christians said, nah, I don't think so. Not really that interested in the law of Moses. We don't have to follow that. We're no longer saved by action or participation. We're saved through faith. And the one thing the Jewish culture could not tolerate was a rejection of the standard and importance of Jewish law. And so from the moment Christians made it clear that the the, uh, uh, Mosaic law was not going to be their guiding light, they began to recognize these early Christians as heretics. And they began to point it out. Now you have to understand that in Rome they allowed any religion, they were all open, they wanted to understand them all, but the one thing you were not allowed to do was start a new religion. So when the Jewish people pointed to the Christians and said, you're no longer welcome in the synagogue, the early persecution of the church was from the Jewish people. In fact, it was so strong that most Jewish people left Jerusalem and started moving away from Jerusalem. In fact, they couldn't find a job. They couldn't work. They weren't allowed in the synagogue. They were no longer Jewish in Jerusalem. That's not a good thing. As a result, you'll read through Paul's letters that he was going out into the community, into all these places where the Gentiles were, and he says, look, we've got to take up a collection for our brothers back in Jerusalem because they're suffering for the gospel. And a large part of Paul's trips around the world were to gain resources to keep the Christians alive and functioning in Jerusalem. Okay, So between about 32 A.D. when Jesus went to the cross and roughly 50 A.D., the persecution that Christians were feeling was from within the Jewish culture itself. Once the Romans figured out that this new sect was a new religion, they want to shut it down. Okay, And so from about 50 A.D. on, most of the persecution that was occurring in the church was from the Romans. The Jews had already kicked them out of the synagogue. Now the Romans were doing that. And we've learned about Nero and Domitian and several others. But I want you to have that background because these letters are written in 95 A.D. During a time when the church is under enormous persecution and many people were dying. And the church at Smyrna is the prototype. It is a martyr's church. It's important to realize that. Because this is one of the churches where Jesus has no condemnation for them. Only commendation. In other words, he doesn't go to that part where he says, oh, by the way, this is what you're not doing well. It's not that this church was perfect. It's that they weren't going to survive long enough to repent or do anything else. They were dying for the cause of Christ, and Jesus knew it. It doesn't do any good to tell people who are dying, who are about to be martyred, to change their action because they're not going to be here to change it. Smyrna was a very wealthy city. You're going to learn that all these communities are wealthy cities. They're on trade routes. 
And this city was critical for being a place where the worship of the Roman emperor was mandatory. For some reason, the Romans chose Smyrna as the place to test worship of the emperor. Prior to about 50 AD, the emperor wanted to be praised and worshiped, but he didn't demand it. Okay, starting with Nero and later on with Domitian, they moved to a point where, no, no, it's not good enough just to like me. You bow down and worship me. In fact, not to not do so was punishable by death. Why were all the people at Smyrna dying? Because they were refusing to worship the emperor. A wealthy trade city, worshiping the emperor was mandatory. They're giving up their lives. They're not going to have time to repent or change. Every person in that congregation knew they were on a death march, period. That's likely why when Jesus introduced himself, he reminds them that he overcame death. And that he's now alive. This is a martyred church who needs to know that. The association with death, victory over resurrection, is the purpose and point of this letter. In fact, the word Smyrna comes from the word myrrh, which is a sweet-smelling perfume used in embalming dead people. The Roman emperor Domitian in 86 to 96 AD was the first to demand worship under the title of Lord from the people of the Roman Empire. It was a test of political loyalty, foreshadowing the Antichrist. What the, what the emperor in Rome did in 95 AD is exactly what the Antichrist is going to do. Worship me, bow down to me, or I'll kill you. Emperor worship had begun as a sort of spontaneous gratitude for all the emperor had done. But by the time of Domitian, he took it another, another step. All you had to do was go to the altar, take a pinch of incense, throw it up on the altar, and say that Caesar, or whoever the leader was, was God. And after that, you could worship and do whatever you wanted to do, as long as you went to the altar and you did what they demanded. Well, the people at Smyrna weren't about to do that. All they had to do was burn a pinch of incense and say, Caesar is Lord, and they would receive a certificate. Okay, later it will be a mark on your body. They received a certificate. And that's exactly what Christians will never do. The persecution of this church continued well into the second century. In 155 AD, a very famous leader of this church in Smyrna was a man named Polycarp. Those who are doing the history study online, we've looked at Polycarp many, many times. Polycarp was the pastor at Smyrna. He refused to bow down to worship Domitian. I mean, I'm sorry, that, that Caesar was Lord. Everybody pleaded with him to do it because he was an old man. They led him down the street. They just said, look, just take the oath, deny Christ, and we'll set you free. Even the people that were going to kill him didn't want to do it. He was an old man. They arranged a big pile of wood, set it up in the middle of the town. People started calling, Polycarp, Polycarp, Poly They wanted him killed. 
And they came to him as he's on the stake inside the wood. They're waiting to light the fire. And they say to him, look, just renounce Jesus. And while they were saying that, he said, I thank you that you have graciously thought me worthy of this day and this hour that I may receive a portion in the number of the martyrs. They told him to deny Christ, and he said, look, for 86 years, Christ has never denied me. I'm not about to start now. Light this thing up. And they lit it up. His story is the essence of Smyrna. That church does not exist anymore because they were obliterated. Revelation 2.9, do not fear what you're about to suffer. Behold, the devil's about to throw some of you in prison. That you may be tested, and for ten days you'll have tribulation. According to Jesus, the persecution that was to come against this church was from the devil. Yet it was measured and limited by God. Thrown into prison in that time was another way of saying that you're awaiting execution. That's what they were doing, awaiting execution. Anywhere in Smyrna that you became a Christian, you were choosing to be an outlaw. And every time you entered the church, you were taking your life into your own hands. Smyrna is a church for heroes. The ten days, nobody knows really what that means. Some people think it's ten literal days where Domitian and others went nuts. Others believe that it represents 10 years, which is more than the seven complete years, and it just means they're going to be persecuted for a long time. Others believe that it means that there will be 10 different Roman emperors who go through a trial of intense persecution for this church, and it turns out when you mark it through, that's exactly what happened. I don't know what the 10 days mean. Nobody does. But he was getting people ready for worse tribulation and worse events than what they were already experiencing, and he promises them. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. In other words, once you die on earth, you won't die again. Okay, there won't be a place later on where you're judged and sent to hell. It's not going to happen. Okay, now a couple things I want to point out real quick. Every letter ends with the same statement, all seven of them. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. I love personally that he didn't say, he who has ears, because I have one that doesn't work. (laughs) What he's saying is, you just have to listen. If you hear this, he who has an ear, pay attention to what I'm saying. And I want to encourage you as we go through these six letters, pay attention to what he's telling each specific church. The promise he told is a crown. Third letter. To the angel of the church at Pergamum write, The words of him who has a sharp two-edged sword. Uh Uh-oh. When Jesus introduces himself as the one that has the piercing, penetrating truth of the word of God, you better pay attention. Pergamum. It's next on the trip, around the circle. 
When John wrote Pergamum, he'd been, it had been the capital city of that area for more than 300 years. It's a gorgeous, absolutely gorgeous city. The old city sat on top of a big mountain with a flat top, and it too was wealthy because it was on the trade routes. It was an extremely religious city. It had temples to the Greek and Roman gods of Dionysus and Athena, and it had a major, major temple to Zeus. Probably the most important temple in the entire uh, Roman Empire uh, to Zeus was in um, this city. It was also especially known for worshiping uh, a god that was involved in healing. In fact, we get the Caduceus from this uh, city. There was a temple there, and when people were sick, they would come into the temple, and they would sleep at night. And they believed that snakes brought healing power. So the whole floor of the church was full of snakes that were non-poisonous. And they believed that if you slept in the church and the snakes were allowed to crawl over you during the night, that you would be healed from whatever you had. So that's what this place was about. Yikes. Yeah. Um, They were tame snakes, though. It also was a unique town because they had built three different temples to Roman emperors so they could worship the emperors there. Okay, as a city. It was a noted center of culture and education. It had one of the biggest libraries there. They were critical in the formation of paper. Uh, in fact, if you have a book from the old Pergamum Press, you are a very rich person. Jesus reminds them that his words are a two-edged sword. That should be a warning about what he's going to say. He reminds us of a passage in Hebrews chapter 4 where he says, The word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even the division of soul and spirit and of joints and marrow, and is a discerner of thoughts and intents of the heart. Jesus was going to use this two-edged sword to separate people in the church from other people in the church and from the Christians, other people in Pergamum. Commendation. I know where you dwell. Okay, that could be good or bad, right? Jesus says, look, I know, where you, I know where you dwell. Look what he says next. Where Satan's throne is. What's this city known for? The worship temple of Zeus up on top of the hill. I know where you live. You live right smack in the middle of Satan's throne. And he says, and even though you do that... You hold fast my name, you won't deny the faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. Jesus does not like this city. On top of the hill there is a temple to Zeus. Christians have been martyred there, and despite those things, this church has held fast to his name, and they have not denied the faith. And he says, by the way, I know you live where Satan dwells. Yet you remain true to my name. You're keeping the faith. You didn't waver even though one of your leaders was martyred. And then he turns and he has something not so positive to say to them. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Remember the Nicolaitans from Ephesus? Nicolaitans were people who wanted to bring the culture into the church. They wanted the church to look like the culture. 
They wanted to not have the church stand out. We talked last week how the word church, ecclesia, ecclesia means to be called out. The church is never, ever supposed to look like the culture. In fact, in the letter to Ephesus, Jesus says, I hate that. I hate it when a church tries to become like the culture because they dilute me in the process. We're supposed to be different. He says this, I have a few things against you. He's referencing a time in the Old Testament in Numbers where the Moabites wanted to destroy the Israelites. Okay, so just ice, ice, ice. Okay. God had told the Israelites, do not mix, intermarry, or engage with pagan cultures. The Moabites were afraid of the Israelites because they had seen what God had done in Egypt. And they're on their way to their promised land. And so they were afraid that God's people were going to destroy them. So they did something very smart. They dressed up all their women and they sent them over to the soldiers. And they said, welcome. And through sexual immorality, seduction, they got the Jewish men to interact, and I won't go too detailed, with the Moabite women. And as those relationships developed, they said, well, why don't you just come over and worship our God too? And that process of bringing a cultural thing into the purity of God's word is what he talks about when he talks about Balaam. In other words, these people in this church are doing the same thing that happened there. They're practicing sexual immorality. They're marrying people who are outside the faith. They're doing things they shouldn't be doing, and it's damaging the church. Sexual immorality marked the entire culture of the Roman Empire. We all know about that. Anybody who actually followed the biblical standard of purity during this time was considered very weird. Much like our culture today. And Jesus says, look, you've tolerated people who are teaching of Balaam. And you've tolerated the Nicolaitans. What he's really saying is, why in the world are you allowing the culture to change who you are, what you do, and me? And we're going to see this theme played out in all seven letters from beginning to end. Jesus was very concerned about the cultural impact on his church. And he knew that there was a whole movement in this church of accommodation to the culture from the city where Satan dwells and people worship him up on a hill and the earpiece falls off. So he charges them, repent. If not, I'll come and I'll take care of them. I'll wage war against them with the sword of my mouth, the two-edged sword, the truth of the word. I'll come down and do what you're not doing. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And then he has a promise. To the one who conquers, I'll give some hidden manna. I'll give him a white stone. The name written on that stone, no one knows except those who receive it. White stones were often given to conquerors. Uh, Manna, extra manna means he's going to feed you spiritually in a way you've never been fed before. Jesus says, look, if you don't take care of this, I'm going to come down and take care of it. Fourth letter. To the angel of the church at Thyatira write... The words of the Son of God who has eyes like the flame of fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. Why do you think he started that way? 
Every time Jesus introduces himself in a letter, he's saying something very specific to that church. Thyatira is the smallest and least important of these seven cities. In history, we have no record of the Christians that live there. We have no evidence that they did any significant political or religious things. Thank you, sir. Scotch tape is important. The elder Pliny, years later, dismissed Thyatira and said it was a very unimportant city. Still, this was a city at that time of trade and business. It had many active guilds and many who worshipped Greek and Roman gods. We know somebody from this city, we meet in Acts chapter 16, was Lydia of Thyatira. Lydia was the woman, if you remember, who had a business of purple dye and purple clothing. It really wasn't purple. It was that red color that royalty wore. You know? And so what she did is her job was to basically dress and develop uniforms for the Roman army. She was from Thyatira. We see numerous references to her in Scripture. Jesus says, look, I'm the one who has the eyes that pierce and see truth. I'm the one who has stood the test in the fire and has brownished feet. Commendation. I know your works. I know your love, your faith, your service, and your patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. This church seems to have it going on. Jesus says, look, I know. I know your works. I know your love. I know your faith. I know your service. I know that you have patiently endured. And I know you're growing in those things because you're doing them more now than you were at the beginning. This church seems to got it going on. Then he says, but I have this against you. You tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. The name Jezebel has a huge, powerful association. It's likely this woman in this church that they're referencing was a real woman in that church at that time who had led the congregation or parts of the congregation towards sexual immorality as the process of worship. She was likely an important person in the church and they were tolerating it. Not likely she was named Jezebel. No one, that would be like naming your boy Hitler. Okay, just people just don't do that. Okay, but the idea of Jezebel brings up this idea of a woman who subverts, changes, manipulates using sexual immorality, sexual attraction, and does so to her own benefit. She said she was a prophetess. Jesus says she's not. That's why Jesus gave him this warning. Remember in Matthew, he said, many will come in my name. False prophets will raise up and deceive many. There have always been people who claim to speak for God in the church, and they just don't. Jesus praised the church at Ephesus because they could sort through it. He's telling this church, you're allowing it to happen. This doctrine of Jezebel comes from the gates of hell. Jesus even says that you'll discover the depths of Satan. On the outside, this church was a model church. 
They were working. Remember, he said they're loving. They have service. He loves their faith. He loves their patience. He loves the way they've endured. If you looked at this church on the outside, you would go, wow, they got it going on. Yet there was significant corruption inside the church among the leaders of the church. And the sin of the church itself was they knew it and they allowed it to continue. You see, that's an important point. If you're a member of a congregation, okay, if you know something is wrong and you know that a leader is sinning, you cannot condone it. And if it's not confessed, you can't stay there. Because to do so makes you just like these people. You allowed that corruption. Jesus says, look, I'm taking care of Jezebel myself. I'm going to cast her into a sickbed with all those who've committed adultery against her. The term adultery is important because it speaks not only to sexual adultery, but spiritual adultery. People who have worshipped a false god. When Christians honor other gods, they are unfaithful to the Lord who saved them. For this reason, a sickbed is actually fitting. They were guilty of adultery, both spiritual and sexual. And Jesus says, look, you love an unclean bed? I'm going to put you in one. I'm going to cast you into a sickbed. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Beloved, I will throw her into a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her, I will throw into great tribulation unless they repent of their works. I will strike her children dead. All the churches will know that I am he who searches the mind and the heart. I will give to each of you according to your works. Are you starting to see a new picture of Jesus being revealed in the letters? Remember, Revelation is to show us who Jesus really is. What we learn in these letters is even his own church, he's very, very serious about what we do with our faith. He gives them a charge. But to the rest of you at Thyatira who do not hold this teaching and who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, I say to you, I do not lay on you any other burden. Only hold fast to what you have until I come. And the promise is, the one who conquers and keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations. He'll rule over them with a rod of iron. And when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from the Father, I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Let's look at the fifth letter. To the angel of the church at Sardis, write, the words of him who has seven spirits of God and the seven stars. Sardis is our next sort of city on a map. Again, another travel route. Him who has the seven spirits and the seven stars, that means this is from Jesus himself. Here's his commendation. I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive. Jesus is telling him, look, I don't miss anything. I see your works. I know what you're doing. More importantly, I actually know why you're doing it. I know your motivation. You see, other people just see the actions. I see your heart. Other people just see what the church is doing. I see the heart of the church. I know what you're doing. I know what motivates you to do it. And I know if your heart's pure. You have a reputation of being a church that has it going on. People who look in on your church think you're alive and well. Well, 
then he says, but you're dead. You have a reputation of being alive. Everybody thinks you're alive. You're dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die. I have not found your works complete in the sight of God. This church is doing all sorts of things, but for all the wrong reasons. What kind of reasons? Maybe money, maybe power, maybe popularity. Whatever they're doing, they're not doing it for Christ, and they're not doing it to advance the gospel. So he says, remember then what you have received, the salvation, the gospel message, what you have heard, the word of God, keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief and you do not know the hour which I come against you. Either they're going to straighten their church up or Jesus himself is coming against it. Wow. These letters are like messed up. Remember then what you received. Then the promise. Yet you still have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their garments. In other words, you have some that haven't sinned. And they will walk with me in white, for they're worthy. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my Father and his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Notice that in every church, every member of the congregation has a personal responsibility and personal accountability to how they respond to what's going on in the church. Okay. This is not just on the leaders. This is on every church person. You either are part of it, you're either engaged, you're doing what Jesus asked you to do, because the church is us, right? It's not me, it's us. And so God is, Jesus is being very, very direct. The sixth letter to the church in Philadelphia. This is easy, this is in Pennsylvania. To the church in Philadelphia, right. The eagles are not my team. No, that's not what it says. It says the words of the Holy One, the one who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one will open. Philadelphia we see on the map as well. Phileo is a Greek word, one of the Greek words for love that means brotherly love or, or brotherly friendship. That's where we get the city of love from Philadelphia. He says, I have the keys of David. What I open, no one will shut. What I shut, no one will open. What he's saying is, I have an opportunity for you. I'm about to open a door for you. I know your works. Behold, I've set before you an open door which no one's going to be able to shut. I know you have but little power, and yet you've kept my word and have not denied my name. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. I'm opening a door of opportunity for you, he says. You can step through it if you want to. No one's going to close the door. I'm opening it for you as a church. I have something for you to do as a church. I'm opening the door. You need to step through it. I also know that stepping through this door is going to require power. You don't have much power. That's why you need me. So I'm giving this church an opportunity because they have not denied me. 
And he says, look, these false Jews, these people who are proclaiming things that aren't true, they're going to understand that I am God and they're going to bow down. Jesus says, look, there's a great opportunity ahead of this church. But you're only going to accomplish it through my power. This church, much like the church at Sardis, has no condemnation. They seem to have their hearts focused on God. And because of that, he's opening an opportunity for them. Remember, God's word says that he looks to and fro for people whose hearts are truly his so he can strengthen them. God looks around the world. He says, where is there a church that I can trust to actually go through a door that I'm going to open? In Revelation, it was the church of Philadelphia. I'm coming soon. Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it, and I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from God out of heaven and my own new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world. To try those who dwell on the earth. I'm coming soon. Hold fast to what you have so that no one can seize your crown. Then we get to the seventh and final letter. And to the angel of the church at Laodicea write, The words of the Amen. The faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. Laodicea on the map, another very wealthy city. The thing that's interesting about Laodicea is just outside the city there are two mountains. Okay? And these mountains are very impressive. When you look at uh, Kamukale, it looks like there's snow on the mountain, right? That's not snow, that's calcium. Over the years, this city has been known for hot springs. And the hot springs bring calcium up, and they look cold, but they're hot. They look cold, but they're hot. Those pools are about 90 degrees to 95 degrees. Jesus says, I know your works. You are neither hot or cold. They know what that means, right? He says, look, you're not hot and you're not cold. Would that you were either hot or cold. One or the other pick. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot or cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. The King James Version has it more correct. You make me want to vomit. Jesus tells this church that has the hot springs that look cold, you're not either of those. If you were hot, I could deal with that. If you're on fire for the Holy Spirit, I'm all over that. I'll be there. I'll help you. If you resist me, hate me, can't stand me, I can deal with that too. What I can't deal with is complacency and not caring. When I see people who don't care one way or the other about me, Jesus says it makes me want to vomit. And it should make us want to vomit too. Jesus says, look, I went to the cross. You can accept it, embrace it, love me for what I did. You can hate me for what I did, but never, ever say it didn't matter. You don't care and it makes me want to vomit. 
You say, I'm rich, I've prospered, I need nothing. Not realizing, Jesus said, that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. Jesus is saying, look, your church thinks you're rich. You got the big building going on. You got the TV ministry. You got all this stuff happening. You got all kinds of things. All kinds of people are coming to you, perhaps. You don't need anything. You got plenty of resources, plenty of money. You can do anything you want to do. You have everything you need in abundance to share the gospel. You are an enormously financially resource-blessed church. You think you don't need anything. You're smug. You're self-reliant. And Jesus says, you make me want to vomit. You say, I'm rich. You say, I've prospered. I need nothing. But he says, can I just tell you that I'm Jesus? And you're actually wretched. And pitiable. Poor. Blind. And naked. I counsel you to buy gold refined by fire so that you can be rich. And white garments so that you can clothe yourself. And the shame of your nakedness may not be seen. And salve to anoint your eyes so that you can see. He says, look, you are so blind and wretched, you can't even see what a condition you're in. You've built this entire church. It looks impressive. You're too blind and stupid and unaware, stupid is my word, to realize that you've missed it. And then he says something really important that we have to remember after reading seven letters like this. Please don't ever forget this. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. Jesus doesn't give up on these churches. He holds them in his hand. Remember, the pastors are in his hand. He's telling them, look, I love you. I love you so much. I want to see you do something different. I want to see you make a change in course direction. I love you so much. Please don't forget that I only discipline the churches that I love. But you know what? You can't discipline a church with flowery, kind words that make them feel good. We're all sitting here tonight going, my God, is he mad at these churches. He's not mad. He's disappointed. He's frustrated. He wants to see change. Every one of these seven letters, he encourages them to change their direction. And he promises them that their relationship will be restored. And they will receive blessings when they do what he says to do. What he will not allow is for these churches to stay where they are. Because if they stay where they are, he is either going to remove that church. Or he's going to come down and take care of the situation himself. Jesus says, look, I don't hate you. Your actions make me want to vomit, but I haven't given up on you. Then he says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come to him and eat with him and he with me. I don't want you to miss this picture. This scripture is often ripped out of context. And it's usually by a pastor who wants to paint a picture in your head. You know, Jesus just knocking at the door of your heart. He's a gentleman just knocking. He wants to hear your heart. He just wants to come in, but you're rebelling against him. 
He just wants to be your friend. And, and he wants to eat with you. And, and he's knocking, and you're not letting him in. And they use this verse as if it's about evangelism. In fact, there's a famous painting of Jesus knocking on a door. And there's no door handle on the outside. It's only on the inside. And so evangelists use that and they go, oh, well, you see, he doesn't open the door. You got to open it and let him in. It preaches really well. It's just not in context of Scripture. Let me give you the picture that Scripture says. Scripture says Jesus is at the door of the church. He is banging on the door saying, somebody, please let me back in to my church. You have become so much like the culture. You have become so much like the world. I can't even get back into my own church and it makes me want to vomit. And he says, if anyone, not the pastor, any person would just open the door to the church, I'll come in. I get a little animated when I get to those points. I can't imagine what it feels like for Jesus to look at these churches that seem to have it going on and they won't even let him in and they can do church without him. He can disappear, go outside, not come back in and nothing changes. The children's ministry is still the same. The worship team still the same. The preaching still the same, but he's not there at all. Block me out. Someone's knocking at the door. Somebody's ringing the bell. He's not going to barge in on a church that doesn't want him. He is a gentleman. We don't want him. He'll stay out of the church. Go on with your programs. Go on with all the things you're doing. But when you wonder why your church isn't doing what you think it should do, or, or maybe you're growing like a weed and yet something inside of you tells you that it's empty and that it's not really real, Jesus says, look, I know your heart. I'm just looking for one single person in the church to recognize I'm not here and go open the door. Thank you, Mark. Open the door. <laughs> To the one who conquers, I will grant with him to sit on my throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what he says to the seven churches. Seven letters to seven churches. The primary level that we look at this, these are seven letters to seven very real churches in Asia in the first century. At the secondary level, our church, any church, can fit into one of these seven categories. Or all of them, or some of them, right? You may have been sitting here while I've been talking going, I wonder if Jesus wrote a church letter to Remnant. What category would we be in? Hold that thought. I'm going to come back to it. Every church has things they do well. Every church has things they need to avoid. Some patterns in the seven chapters of Revelation, or the seven letters of Revelation, avoid sexual immorality. Avoid it physically and spiritually. Don't try to conform or mimic the culture. In fact, you should be completely different than anything anybody sees in culture. 
Don't be seduced physically or spiritually by things that are not of God. Avoid the world's materialism. Avoid activities, programs, ministries that leave Jesus out. Those are the patterns in the seven churches. On a third layer, many believe that these seven churches represents eras of the church itself over the last 2,000 years since Jesus left. That each church is representative of a time of the overall Christian church. So let me show you an example. To the church at Ephesus. That's the first church in Acts. Growing by leaps and bounds, doing extraordinary things, but walking away from their first love. Working hard, faithful, in relationships with Jesus, but the fire's gone. Look at how they started out in Acts chapter 4. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and prayers. This church, when Jesus says, look, go back and do the things you originally did. What they originally did was this. They were in community with one another. They shared communion together. They prayed together, and they didn't study. And they studied the word both together and individually. They didn't just do these things; they were devoted to doing these things. These were the things that were on the top of their priority list every day. I need to be in community. I need to be praying. I need to be in communion. I need to read the word. The Lord is present in all four of those things. When you read the Word, He's there with you. When you pray, He's there with you. When you take communion, He's there with you. So many believe that the early church of Ephesus represents church history from A.D. 32 to A.D. 64. Time Jesus died until the next thing happened. The church at Smyrna was the persecuted church, the martyred church. And many people believe that this church represents the history of Christianity from A.D. 64 to about 315. The time from which Nero started persecuting Christians until the time in 315 when Rome embraced Christianity as the religion of the Roman Empire. Church at Pergamum, remember they were the ones that looked good on the outside but they had corrupt leaders. Many people believe that um, the church was official during this time, but the, what they did that Jesus didn't like was they got in bed with the Roman political leaders, and they combined the political leader with the leader of the church. And they began to change the church. They began to bring the culture into the church. The leaders of the church, the Pope and others, went after worldly possessions and worldly things. And during this time in church history, the church grew. It looked great, but Jesus says the leaders were corrupt. Okay, that's what people believe this era is about. Throughout the Bible, we see that, by the way, the Israelites will go into a new place. God will tell them, you know, stay separate from the culture, stay separate from those who are in power, stay separate from the kings. And sure enough, they go and they bow down to the king or they do whatever they're supposed to do and then they get punished for it and he has to send a prophet down to go, what the heck were you doing? I told you not to do that. Well, church history during this time frame, that's exactly what was happening. The church had basically blended with the Roman Empire. They began to use the church to manipulate people uh, into giving taxes and other things and buying things. Um, and many people believe that that represents the church at Pergamum who had enticed Jezebel. 
church at Thyatira was the church of the Middle Ages, 590 to 1517. Going along fine, but the church leaders are going in the wrong direction. Many people believe the church at Sardis is the church of the Reformation, 1517 to 1800. The corruption of the church became obvious. The, what they've been seeing for years in the Roman church was becoming obvious. And now there was a response to that, both Protestant and Catholic, and they move into a time of repentance and reform. That's the Reformation. Philadelphia, it represents the revived church era. From 1800 to about 1940, the church was on fire. Evangelism, spirituality, the world was embracing Jesus. There were revivals breaking out all over the world. Uh, And many people believe that this era represents that time. It's God's blessing of the church basically correcting itself. And then we get to the church at Laodicea, 1940 to present. A church that has everything it could need. Every advantage, every resource, far more money than they need to be able to project the gospel. But yet, they've locked Christ out. Many people believe that the church era that we're in now is the apostate era. The church that's all about production and these things and doing things. And and, and they've completely left Jesus out. They've become social clubs. They've become uh, country clubs. They've become uh, uh, ministry focused on producing resources and money and leaving Jesus out of the process. They're not praying. They're not depending on God. In fact, he's outside knocking. And the church is not letting him in. If you want to describe the church today, it's the church at Laodicea. So many churches can run everything they do without Jesus at all. And no one who comes on the weekend would ever be able to tell the difference unless they're in tune with the Holy Spirit. Have you visited churches in Europe lately? They're museums. Mm -hmm. The only people walking around are those taking pictures. Europe is now a post-Christian society. And America is headed to that very quickly. So we can see that regardless of which of these you want to look at, letters to seven churches, letters to the church at whole, including us, letters that represent each era, there's one thing that's really clear. These seven letters are a warning to us from Jesus. No matter how you read them. Seven times. He who has an ear, let him hear what Jesus says to the churches. He showed it. It's not real pretty. You know, I debated about ending here, and you probably wish I would. (laughs) Um, But I've been kind of messed up all day. Um, I I didn't want to go here tonight, but I'm going to do it anyway. You give me a microphone? Okay. Quit holding the thing on my ear. That work? No, that's why I hold the thing on my ear. It works. Is this working? Is this working? Is it working? Can you hear me? If you're going to bring me a mic, there it is. Okay, good. Uh, if you have somewhere else you need to be, it's okay. I'm going to spend about 20 minutes here. Um, I think God has something He wants me to do. Let me start here. Have you figured out which church we are? 
If Jesus was going to write a letter to us, have you figured out which one we are? I mean, as you listen to the descriptions, as you think about the church, all seven of them, if Jesus was going to write a letter to us, and essentially he did, by the way, he wants to show us what is. Remember this book. It's about what was, what is, and what is to come. He wants to make sure that we, remnant, see what is. If we just look at these letters and we go, wow, those churches were seriously messed up. And we don't, in our spirit, feel some sort of extreme conviction. We probably need to go back and reread the letters over and over and over. If we think we're the church that's got it all going on and Jesus is going to tell us, hey, you got it going on, just keep doing what you're doing, you're in a fantasy land. I've been praying a lot about this, and I feel horribly convicted, just so you know. Last time I did something like this, it didn't go real well. But it's going to be a difficult week anyway, so I thought I might as well go there. Uh, I need to share with you what God has placed on my heart and what I know He wants me to say to you tonight. I have no doubt that we're the church at Ephesus. Solid on doctrine. No one's ever going to come in here and teach false doctrine. We're not going to allow it. We're good at separating those who say they're apostles and they're not. We're really good at those who are false teachers and recognizing them. We have many who are not with us anymore because our elders recognize that what they were teaching and doing was not honoring God. We have protected this church in that era. We've done those things really well. You want to come and learn what the Bible says? You want to know truth? You want to understand almost every word of the Bible? We're the place. But I know that we have abandoned our first love. I have no doubt about it. In Acts chapter 2, he said they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to the prayers. And awe came on every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And day to day, attending the temple together, breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all people. And the Lord added to their number every day. That's what we all did when we first started following Jesus. We couldn't wait, right? I got to read the word. I got to pray. I need to be with my Christian friends. I'm going to prioritize being at church no matter what's going on. I don't know that I fully have it figured out yet, but, but I want to contribute financially to what God's doing at that church. I have skills and resources. I, I'm going to volunteer at what God's doing in that church because there are children who need to know about Jesus. There are high schoolers who need to know about Jesus. 
Going back to the first things means I'm excited to tell people about Jesus. I'm excited to share the gospel with them. I can't wait to read the word. I can't wait to talk to God in prayer. I can't wait to make sacrifices to move his mission forward and not my mission. Those are the things we did when we first fell in love with Jesus. And the more I pray, and I'm talking about me now, the more I'm aware that we've gradually just stepped over here. We're still good on doctrine. We're still good on telling the truth. We're still good on a lot of things. Jesus still loves us, but he's disciplining us. He wants us on our faces repenting because we have not done the things that we used to do first. I have no doubt about this. I think this is a milestone moment for our church. We are either going to get on our faces and confess that we have walked away, not left, not lost. We've chosen to step aside to the things that we should be prioritizing. Or Jesus himself is going to come down and remove our lampstand. That's what his word says. To the angel of the church at Remnant write... The words of him who holds seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works. I know your toil. I know your patient endurance. I know how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be fake. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you've not grown weary. But this I have against you. You have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I'll come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. And then he says, yet yeah, this you have. You hate the work of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. That's this church. Preach it every week. We have got to avoid being conformed to the gospel of our culture. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. At one time, uh, Paul was writing to the Philippians. And he was about to tell them things that weren't real easy to tell. And um, he told them... He said, um, I want you to know before I say something that I have you in my heart. Paul, as a pastor, was telling the Philippians, I have you in my heart. And I hope you guys know how much I love you. And I hope you know how much I can't wait for all of us to celebrate when Jesus comes back. And he says, that church at Remnant was rocking. But like Jesus in his seven letters, it's my love for you and for me and our Lord where I have to tell you we have work to do. We have priorities to rearrange. We closed our children's, part of our children's ministry tonight because we don't have volunteers. Our tithing has been good, but nowhere near where it needs to be to do what God's called us to do. Our personal time in the Word, I don't know what to do. It's yours. Um, you have to figure out where you are with that. Time in prayer with God. But I know that Jesus has told me, this is the letter I wrote to you. You're the church at Ephesus. 
you got to get back to your first love. So the elders are going to meet, and we're going to begin to process what it means to get back to our first love and to lead everybody else there. It starts, however, Jesus says, with remembering from where you've fallen. That requires something. It requires an awareness that you admit you've fallen. That's the hard part. Now, there are people in this room that I know, yes, are in the Word every day. They're praying. They're serving. They're giving. They're doing everything they can do to honor and worship our Lord. In fact, one of them, we will be attending his funeral next weekend. But I don't think there's one of us in this room that doesn't need to be called back in some way to our first love. So what I'd like to do, Lamar, this is unplanned. Um, Okay, I I want us to spend some time at this altar as a church praying. Praying that God will not come and remove our lampstand. Praying that we will get back to our first love. Praying personally that we are committed to not being the church that has left our first love. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to ask those who feel prompted, and I hope it's the whole church, to come down and get on our faces before God. And confess to yourself personally where you're at, what you're doing, where you've been. And then I'm going to ask Lamar to join me and we're going to pray on behalf of the church. Because this starts with repentance. And repentance means stop going the direction you're going. Turn around and go where you know you should go. So for the first few minutes, I'd like you just to stay where you're at and pray. Remember from where you've fallen. And then as you feel led, I really want to encourage you to get down on your face. And we as a church will do that. And we will humble ourselves. And we will repent. And I'm sorry that I have led us to this point. Let me pray for us. God, you wrote the letters because the pastors didn't know I'm not using that as an excuse. I'm just thanking you that you care enough about us to write letters to us and give us an opportunity before you spew us out of your mouth or steal our lampstand. I believe this is a milestone night for our church. I believe that we are going to see blessings poured out if our hearts are truly yours. I thank you, God, that we are not the church that has you locked out. We're just a church that has stepped away a bit. So, God, now move in our hearts, move in our church. Holy Spirit, bring conviction in this room. Because without conviction, there's no confession. And without confession, there's no repentance. And without repentance, there is no healing. And we ask it in Jesus' name.